0: Hello everyone, my name is Wesley Levisay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at War. Com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Grey History. Today's episode is dedicated to when plans go terribly wrong. Titled The Assembly of Rebels, we'll be covering the government's realisation of an impending bankruptcy courtesy of the American Revolutionary War. We'll also be covering their disastrous attempt to abort said bankruptcy with a solution that only made the problem worse. So, without further ado, let's begin. Welcome to Grey History. Episode 5, The Assembly of Rebels. That is the sound of a time bomb. A debt time bomb, to be more precise. One that has been strapped to the foundations of the old regime since the French government incurred more than a billion livre worth of debt through the American Revolutionary War. At this point in the story, we find ourselves in August 1786, five years after Jacques Necker, the People's Minister, the People's Hero, had resigned from his post as the Director General of Finances. A lot had happened in five years. An aristocratic reaction had enraged the Third Estate, a scandal had engulfed the monarchy which cemented the Queen's image as a monster, and the increased proliferation of Enlightenment ideas undermined the supremacy of absolutism. Yet, something that did not occur in those five years was sustained effective reform to prevent the coming bankruptcy which loomed on the horizon. No, no, no. Quite the opposite, in fact it would be fair to say that two-fifths of Jack's shit had been done to address the coming crisis until 1786. A costly mistake for both Necker's replacement and the nation itself. Before we examine the events of 1786, when someone did finally attempt to cut the red wire, I want to briefly explain just how crazy and archaic the French tax system was. With an understanding of just how ugly this beast is, You'll gain an appreciation as to just how difficult it was going to be to defuse this debt bomb and avoid bankruptcy. The most glaring flaw of the old regime's tax policies was the exemptions of the privileged classes. It's simply not true to say that the first and second estates didn't pay any taxes, they most certainly did. But considering their wealth, their percentage of land ownership, their business interests, it's reasonable to say that they were hardly paying their fair share of tax, or at least how you and I think of it today. If you think that the top 1% today isn't paying enough tax, well, at least they're meant to be paying something. Most members of the nobility could justify through some forgotten right or prestigious title why they didn't have to pay a particular tax, and those that couldn't often bought government offices through the process of venality which would give them the exemption they were looking for. To make matters worse for the cause of equitable taxation, members of the upper crust of the Third Estate got in on the Anti-Tax Act. Certain government officers may not have transferred nobility on the purchaser, but they did transfer exemption from some forms of taxation. The result was that both nobles and bourgeoisie were purchasing their way out of ongoing tax. Interestingly, these officers were sought not only for their economic purpose, but for the social one as well. To avoid paying tax was a distinction reserved for the elites, and so for members of the bourgeoisie who aspired to join them. These tax-exempting offices were purchased not only because of their economic benefit, but because of the social status benefit as well. It paid to have a tax exemption in more ways than one. With most of the first and second estate lightly taxed, if at all, the burden of taxation predominantly fell on the bourgeoisie and wealthy peasants. What about the poorer city workers and normal peasants, you ask? Well, sure, they paid tax, but they escaped the majority of the burden through a very clever ploy. And that ploy was called poverty. The fact of the matter was that many peasants just simply couldn't pay what was due. They were just too poor. From the taxman's perspective, there was no point flogging a dead horse. So you might as well focus on the bourgeoisie and the wealthier peasants. Now, to say that the tax system of the old regime was comprised of four broad groups of taxes is a bit of a stretch on my behalf. Firstly, because it implies the old regime had a taxation system. It's perhaps more accurate to suggest that the old regime had a series of taxation policies that were created at various points in time. As a result, these tax policies often had little coordination between them. The phrase tax system is frankly too generous a term for a cluster of policies which are anything but systematic in nature. The policies were about as systematic as a street map of Rome. More importantly, however, trying to simplify everything into four broad groups of taxation types also involves a bit of a simplification, but in interest of both time and my sanity, that's probably the best way to approach it. Thus, the taxes of the old regime can be grouped as follows. Farmed taxes, direct taxes, religious taxes, and feudal dues. Let's start with the certified organic taxes first, the farmed taxes. France at this point in time had many taxes that were farmed by a group of individuals known as the Farmer Generals. The Farmer Generals were contractors who bid for the right to collect a number of indirect taxes every six years. They paid the monarchy a fixed sum and they got to keep the difference between what they actually raised and what they had agreed to pay the king. Unsurprisingly, these individuals were very rich, very hated and very dead by the time the common person was controlling the guillotine in a few years time. The system was like that in ancient Rome, and like the Roman tax collectors, they were very good at their job. In fact, that's part of the reason why they were hated so much. At least 25,000 individuals worked for the Farmer Generals, meaning that they were the largest employer in the nation after the army, the navy, and the church. The majority of those individuals made up essentially a paramilitary force. That's right, a paramilitary tax collection force. Stuff of nightmares, isn't it? Armed with weapons and the authority of the king, the farmer generals were empowered to force regular Frenchmen to pay whatever sum seemed reasonable, or, most often, whatever sum seemed achievable. With the power of the king and sword behind them, the farmer generals weren't exactly held back by moral dilemmas and ethical questions, as they collected by any means necessary somewhere between a third and half of the state's revenue. In September 1750, Four decades before the revolution, the Marquis de Jason wrote in his journal about the opportunistic search for new revenue and the ruthless policies of the farmer generals. An officer of the election has come into my village, where my country house is, and has said that the taille of the parish would be much raised this year. He had noticed that the peasants looked fatter than elsewhere. He had seen hen's feathers lying about the doors, that people were living well and were comfortable that I spent a great deal of money in the village for my household expenses, etc. This is what discourages the peasants. This is what causes the misfortune of the kingdom. This is what Henry IV would weep over where he living now. Historian Annie Besant adds to this picture of almost barbaric greed on the part of the collectors. The tax collectors were the scourge of France. They were authorised to employ arms to enforce the payment of taxes. They sent their unfortunate debtors to prison, to the galleys, to the hangman's court. They would seize first the linen drying on the hedgerows, then the furniture of the defaulters. Tis not sufficing, they would take the doors of the cottages off their hinges, the tiles from the roof, and they would even pull down the house in order to carry off the heavy beams and the planks. Now quoting a primary source, I have known poor people sell their beds and lie upon straw, sell their pots, kettles, and all their necessary household goods to content the unmerciful collectors of the king's taxes. It's easy to see why so many former employees of the Farmer General, viewed as bloodsuckers by the public, would pay a visit to the guillotine in a few years' time. This relentless form of tax collection was enforced by the farmer generals for various indirect taxes on goods like salt, tobacco, soap, wine, playing cards, you name it, there was probably a tax on it. And this taxation of everyday goods was problematic to say the least. Why? Well, because this farm taxation system was so prevalent that it distorted, no, in fact it outright destroyed trade within the kingdom. Of the 75,000 tons of goods exported from Paris and its surrounds, none of it went to southern France. A boatload of wine travelling from Provence in the southeast of the nation to Paris would be required to pay roughly 40 tolls during that journey. For some French provinces in the eastern part of the kingdom in particular, internal customs barriers and taxation meant that it was easier to trade with Prussia than Paris. Of course, that's not all. Where there's taxes, there's crime. I'm not referring to taxation being theft, which it is. I'm referring to taxation, especially custom barriers, encouraging smuggling. The Gabelle, or the salt tax, was one of the most hated of the indirect taxes, particularly because it was on a basic commodity. Various areas of France paid widely different amounts, which, unsurprisingly, resulted in vast smuggling operations. In 1783, as the debt bomb ticked away, more than 11,000 people were arrested for infraction of the Gabelle laws, which explains why tens of thousands of officials were needed to police the tax. All of this ruthless taxation and smuggling only served to reinforce a distrust of the bureaucracy and officials of the old regime, but to the point where it was stifling the economy. The peasants didn't just hide their possessions when the taxman came to town, they started doing more drastic things as well. Necker, the Swiss wonder boy who resigned in May 1781 after releasing his Comte Rendu, noted this about taxation. I remember a singular feature of this subject. I think it was 20 years ago that an intendant, with the laudable intention of encouraging the manufacture of honey and the cultivation of bees, began by asking for statistics as to the number of hives kept in the province. The people did not understand his intentions. They were, perhaps, suspicious of them. And in a few days, almost all the hives were destroyed. Not exactly the nation-building policies of a great kingdom. The old regime's tax system, and fear of that taxation system, was robbing itself out of some sweet, sweet revenue. Now, in addition to these hated indirect taxes which were farmed, direct taxes were also levied on the population. These taxes, such as the Capetition, were also borne predominantly by the wealthier peasants and members of the bourgeoisie. On top of these direct taxes were forced taxes for the church, including the tithe, which would take from the average peasant around 10% of their produce. Finally, there were feudal dues. Now, these feudal dues were those taxes and rights the nobles had started so rigorously reinforcing in the years leading up to the revolution. The right to tax marriages or property transfers, the right to tax goods moving along particular waterways or roads, the right to confiscate a portion of a peasant's harvest. These rights were relics of the feudal era, and unsurprisingly, those nobles who rigorously enforced these relics would feel the wrath of the masses in the coming revolution. Interestingly though, it wasn't just the nobles getting in on the action. It was not uncommon for new bourgeois landlords to stick the boot to the peasant just as much as the rural gentry had been doing to extract every last drop they were owed. I suppose they heard the old saying, if you can't beat them, join them. That brings to an end our much simplified whirlwind tour of the mess that was the mechanisms of revenue generation for old regime France. In short, those people with the wealth paid hardly any taxes, and those people that did have to pay were the very definition of overtaxed. To make matters worse, the system stifled economic growth and encouraged crime. Unsurprisingly, such a system led to a hell of a lot of resentment and the occasional violent outburst, particularly when food was scarce. But as a nice change of pace, it was not just the third estate who felt the pain of France's taxation system
1: At LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the US, excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. BGW Group. were prohibited by law. 18 plus Terms and conditions apply.
0: Let us return to the ticking time bomb of debt. No one had been trying to disarm this bomb since Necker's dismissal. The individual who should have been trying to disarm this bomb, however, was one of Necker's successors, Charles Alexander de Cologne, a former intendant and from the 3rd of November 1783, the Controller General of Finances. The problem for the French nation, however, was that Cologne, unlike Necker, was not prepared to say no. He was a yes-man, and he said it often. To him, his popularity, his social standing, and his duty to meet the desires of the royal family were paramount. The deficit be damned, those were his priorities, and he was going to stick to them. Unlike Necker, who seemed to relish the opportunity to pick a fight with the powerful courtiers and sought to tighten the government's purse strings left, right, and centre, Cologne was generally prepared to sign the cheque and tried as much as possible to avoid biting the hand that fed him. This is how historian Robert Johnson describes the situation. From 1783 to 1787, the finances were in the hands of Cologne, whose management proved decisive and fatal. His dominant idea was that of a courtier, always to honour any demand made of the treasury by the king or queen. To do less would be unworthy of a gentleman and a devoted servant of their majesties. So Cologne, bowing gracefully, smiling reassuringly, embarked on a fatal course, borrowing where he could, anticipating in one direction, defaulting in another, but always, and somehow, producing the Louis necessary to the enjoyment of the present moment. In short, the Yes Man was, unsurprisingly, appeasing his superiors to the detriment of the state's finances. While historian Robert Johnson has done a great job at summarising the Controller General, I do think that Johnson is being a little too harsh. Often when hearing stories about the Revolution, Cologne is depicted as incompetent and ineffectual. To an extent, this is undeniably correct, but this view has a risk of being a little bit too simplistic. There is some grey history here. It may be a common opinion amongst historical accounts of the Revolution, but in my own opinion, Cologne is not so black and white. While it is true that Cologne, unlike Necker, made little attempt to reduce court expenditure, the actual amounts it increased was not very dramatic at all during Cologne's tenure. Royal expenditure usually hovered around six to seven percent of the budget, which interestingly enough, was the same proportion during Necker's time in office. The actual dollar value sure, that had increased, but not the proportion of expenditure itself. Remember that one of the criticisms of Wonderboy Necker was that for all the friction his penny pinching created, it saved very little state revenue. Furthermore, the British budget at this time spent almost double the proportion on its monarchy, which is even more meaningful when you consider that the British were far more taxed than the French. Perhaps we can cut Cologne's cheque writing some slack, given the expenses of the British counterparts. But these discussions around royal expenditure, for which Cologne is so often lampooned for facilitating, kind of miss the bigger picture. The real cause for the continually deteriorating budget was not royal expenditure at all. It was the military. During the American Revolutionary War, France had to borrow a large amount of money because it was attempting to sustain both a continental army and a transcontinental navy simultaneously. After the conflict, members of the French cabinet argued that to exploit the gains from their labour, which weren't as forthcoming as first thought, a large military was required. This was particularly the case if opportunities arose in India to re-establish a firm French presence on the subcontinent. The result was that peace was not dramatically cheaper than war, and thus, for poor Cologne, he could hardly make any serious dents in the debt even if he wanted to. Many depict him as an incompetent bureaucrat, one that reminds them of an incompetent buffoon. The truth is, is that a competent bureaucrat may not have done much better against a French government inclined to protect its largest expenditures. One final note about Cologne's tenure before we explore his attempt in addressing the looming bankruptcy. At the start of his tenure, Cologne was perceived to be wise, intelligent and a good fit as Controller general a man who could help get France back onto the pathway of fiscal stability. Not that anyone really understood just how bad the mess was, partly because Necker's Comte Rendu had cooked the books and covered it all up, and partly because the government didn't want to advertise just how bad a position they were in in fearing of spooking their creditors and having their funding sources dry up. Cologne tried his hand at modernising some aspects of the economic system, including reducing internal trade barriers, introducing trade agreements with other nations, and reforming the monetary system. The problem for Cologne, however, was that these reforms, although well-intentioned, were not well-executed. His public image deteriorated as a result. And ineptitude wasn't the only buzzword starting to form around the minister. Corruption was another. Shady land deals and a taste for expensive items tarnished Cologne's image as a trustworthy, capable controller of finances. Furthermore, his attempts to reinforce censorship on the underground press made him an enemy of the ever-vocal publishers, and the Diamond Necklace Affair tarnished the image of leading ministers in the government while it tarnished the Queen at the same time. The result of all of this was that when Cologne finally confronts the ticking time bomb, when he finally attempts to cut the red wire, when he finally attempts to do something about the looming debt crisis... He was viewed by many in the public as a spineless minister, intent on allowing the court to continue their lavish ways at the expense of the people. Additionally, he was perceived as incompetent or outright corrupt, having implemented reforms that were burdens for the common folk while his business interests often benefited from them. Put simply, Clone was not a very popular minister, which is interesting because he's about to try to enlist public opinion for the aversion of bankruptcy. Needless to say things didn't go to plan. Towards the end of 1786, Cologne realised that his policies of keeping everyone happy with little money showers wasn't really working. Well, it may have been working from a popularity sense, but it wasn't working from a preventive a bankruptcy sense. The Controller General was facing a fiscal crisis, and he didn't have any way he could rectify the situation with any certainty. There were two obvious paths Cologne could take, and both looked pretty darn bleak. Both options were like cutting the red wire without cutting the black wire next to it while using a chainsaw to provide the blade, while blindfolded and drunk and upside down and having Katy Perry's fireworks blasting into your eardrums. You get the point. The options that Cologne was presented with weren't great ones. The first potential pathway was to try to get some sort of reform package through the Parliaments. After all, if taxation reform could be introduced and applied to the first two privileged orders... Well, perhaps Cologne could avoid bankruptcy. Cologne predicted, however, that such a path would result in inaction. The parliaments would never consent to the infringement of privileges which would be required to balance the books. Specifically, no taxation on the privileged orders. Cologne was proposing to tax the nobles, and nobles were the judges. This view was reinforced by the fact that the Parlement had historically relished the opportunity to empower themselves at the expense of the monarchy and tear strips of the monarchy as they did so. Worse still, the Parliaments, no doubt casting themselves as the champion of the people as they had often done so before, would call on the government to choose pathway number two. So, what was the second obvious choice that Cologne clearly didn't want to take? That other option was to call... The Estates General. The Estates General was the closest thing France had to a Parliament, but it shouldn't be considered as such. It was more of a glorified advisory body. The body comprised of representatives from all three Estates, but representatives sat and voted as three separate entities based on the Estate. You can think of it as like a Parliament with three chambers, and a majority in two of the Estates were required for the Estates General to pass a motion. In other words, the representatives would vote amongst themselves for each estate, and then each estate would get a single vote. With each estate having one vote, the first and second estates would generally vote together, during any controversial debate in particular, outvoting the third estate two to one. But while option two might sound harmless, there was a problem with selecting it. The estates general hadn't met since 1614. More than 170 years before Cologne was trying to figure out this problem. More than 60,000 days. More than 1.5 million hours. Why such a long time? Well, this was meant to be the age of absolute monarchy. Louis XIV and Louis XV had no intention of having their divine rights of absolute monarchs being infringed by an upstart, unholy body of individuals who had not been divinely appointed to run the kingdom. These strong-willed kings simply forced their will upon the parliaments of previous centuries. In 1786, however, the world was a much different place compared to what it had been when the last estates were called in 1614. The world was immersed with Enlightenment ideas and an American republic to embody them. Thus, summoning an estates general would have been seen as an agreement to constitutional government and prelude to a declaration of rights, or worse still, a constitution. Once summoned, the government believed that the Estates-General wouldn't go away for another 170 years. Calling an Estates-General was viewed as opening the Pandora's constitutional government box. It was feared the body would remain a permanent feature of French government. Understandably, conceding to essentially permanent representative government was something the Wither 16th had no intention to do. Cologne, therefore, had to come up with a third alternative. A tad unconventional, but not without precedent, he decided to summon an assembly of notables. It became an assembly of rebels. On February the 22nd, 1787, 144 notables gathered at Versailles. The notables had been summoned by the king to deliberate on Cologne's reform package, and then to approve it. If neither the Parlement nor the Estates General would legitimise his reforms, Cologne would create his own constitutionally dubious body to do so. Now, I hope you're sitting down for this next piece of information because it may very well shock you. The notables were almost all nobles. Mind-blowing, I know. Only ten non-nobles joined the seven princes of the blood, seven prominent archbishops, seven hereditary dukes, six marquis, one baron, nine counts, eight marshals and other distinguished members, including the leaders of the parliaments. The notables were broken up into seven bureaus, each chaired by a prince of the blood, and they quickly started to analyse Cologne's reform package. Cologne was proposing to replace the Capitan and 20th taxes with a new land tax that would apply to all landowners, privileged or not. Internally, he was proposing to stimulate the economy by removing custom barriers and liberating the grain trade. He would also eliminate some direct taxes and introduce elected assemblies to help the central government collect and appropriate revenue. That's right, Cologne was proposing elected assemblies, just as Necker had done. Oh, how far absolutism had fallen. Interestingly, unlike the Estates General, these Provincial Assemblies would not distinguish between orders, meaning the two privileged orders could not simply outvote the third within them. In these bodies, every representative would get just one vote, noble or not, removing the nobility's grip on the levers of power. The package also included reforms to the gabelle and to the Corvée, two of France's most hated taxes. But the privileged orders... Those subject to the new land tax, would still be exempt from the Talais and the new corvée, which would be paid in money instead of labour. All this, Cologne argued, would save the French nation from chaos and disaster. The only problem was, his assembly of notables weren't inclined to agree. As it turns out, this freshly made rubber stamp was fresh out of ink. Actually, that's a poor analogy. The more appropriate analogy would be that of a lion tamer in a circus who having just asked his pride of lions to perform a trick, is about to have his face ripped off instead. The first problem Cologne ran into was the fact that not every notable actually believed something needed to be done. A great outcome for a minister, considering he would not only have to convince the notables to adopt his controversial solution, but he would also need to convince them that there was a problem to solve in the first place. What caused this scepticism on the part of the notables was Jacques Necker, Back in 1781, Swiss wonderboy Jacques Necker had released the Comte de rendu, and that much-praised document recorded a budget surplus of some 10 million livres. Given that surplus, some notables wondered just how France now found itself, apparently on the verge of bankruptcy. The fact that this surplus was fictitious was not comprehensible to some. The Comte de rendu had, after all, been sold some 40,000 times in 17 editions. People had even learnt to read using the document. I'm only exaggerating a little bit when I say that the popular books at the time would have been number one, the Bible, and number two, the Comte de Rendu. So when Cologne called Necker, one of the most respected men in France, a liar, and then refused to open the government's books to prove it, Cologne's credibility, already muddled in the court of public opinion, was tarnished further. As a result, so was his cause. Bogged down in debate around the likelihood of bankruptcy, the urgency for reform lessened, the momentum waned. The wheels were falling off the car before it had even driven off the lot. Two weeks passed, and inaction was the only tangible achievement of the Assembly of Notables. In an attempt to regain the initiative and subdue the increasingly hostile assembly, Cologne decided to go all out. Warning of the consequences of bankruptcy, the Controller-General proclaimed on March 2nd, 1787, the chief thing is not to delay the resolution which must bring an end to the disproportion between the receipts of state and its needful expenditure. To delay this revolution is to risk losing everything, to endanger the safety of the state. Now, in owning what can be considered A, ironic, and B, completely wrong, the Archbishop of Toulouse responded, Oh come, the danger is not so great. That response comes from a man who is going to become essentially the leader of the opposition, particularly as the notables become more and more rowdy. The Archbishop, Etienne charles de lumaine couldn't have been more wrong. As the days continued, the complaints of the notables began to pile up. One by one, the notables became more obstructionist, more vocal, more dangerous to a monarchy that had invited the public to watch a body which, instead of submitting to the will of the king, was openly questioning him. On the 16th of March, nearly four weeks since commencing deliberations, the Third Bureau, chaired by the Duke of Orléans, submitted this formal protest. The Bureau, presided over by His Grace, the Duke of Orléans, considered that it owed the King and the nation an accounting of its true feelings and considered that it needed to explain the disparity between the principles on which its judgments were based and those embodied in the memoranda it received. The Bureau acknowledges that its principles are contrary to those in the Memorandum on the Establishment of Provincial Assemblies, which it considers unconstitutional and lacking the powers necessary to render them useful. They also disagreed about the taxing kind known as the land tax, which it considered to be vague, disproportionate and extravagant, as well as the reimbursement of the clergy's debts, which it considered to be contrary to the principles of property. The Bureau believes itself obliged to also state that it did not deliberate on any monetary tax, either already collected or to be collected, either already established or to be established, and either under the name of the Twentieths or any other name. Prior to any deliberation on these subjects, the Bureau first desires to have access to the revenue and expenditure accounts, the plans and projects announced by the controller general and the means of saving that His Majesty proposes to relieve the burden on his people. That's a very long way of saying no. And that very long way of saying no was being replicated by the other working groups of the Assembly. They had no intention of playing ball. Irrelevant of which historian you read, they all point to how vocally obstructionist the Assembly becomes. What they don't do, however, is agree on why the Assembly became obstructionist. Their motives aren't black and white. It's an aspect of grey history. Historian Simon Sharma argues in his book Citizens that the Notables did not rally against Cologne's plans to protect their own privileged interests, but rather simply because they disagreed that the plans proposed were the best way to go about their intended consequences. Some bureaus suggested that the land tax could be extended to forms of property not originally proposed, including urban land. Other bureaus called for lowering taxes on the most downtrodden, while some suggested that taxing gross produce was ill-advised and that net produce should be taxed instead. Sharma states, Where disagreement occurred, it was not because Cologne had shocked the notables with his announcement of a new fiscal and political world. It was either because he had not gone far enough or because they disliked the operational methods built into the program. The debates over the land tax do not at all suggest a group of rich landowners, for that is indeed what they were, digging in their heels at the threatened onslaught of their privileges. Sharma's opinion, that the notables were merely interested in the best outcome for France and they were not protecting their own privileges, is fundamentally at odds with the view of other historians. After all, it makes sense to suggest that a privileged body tasked with removing their own privileges would deliberately fail to do just that. How often do we see politicians today vote to cut back their own salaries? Not very often. That the Notables were rebelling against their creator for reasons of self-interest is the opinion of historian Francois Mignot. The Notables, chosen by the government from the higher classes, formed a ministerial assembly which had neither a proper existence nor a commission. It was, indeed, to avoid the parlements and the estates-general, and Cologne addressed himself to a more subordinate assembly, hoping to find it more docile. But, composed of privileged persons, it was little disposed to make sacrifice. Historian Gennetto Selvamini shares this view. The notables opposed Cologne for reasons differing from those that prompted the bourgeoisie to protest. The bourgeoisie wanted an end to privilege and financial chaos, and saw in Cologne a representative of the old regime. The notables resisted him because his reforms threatened their own privileges. Salvamini highlights something important in that quote. The bourgeoisie. Because while all this was going on, while the assembly of notables was converting into an assembly of rebels, the public had been watching. You wouldn't need to commission any public polling to know which side they were rooting for. The third estate was firmly backing the rebellious notables. Yes, that's right. The third estate was backing the team who was preventing equitable taxation and provincial assemblies. While initially receptive to the idea of an assembly of notables, Cologne's public image as a corrupt spineless trickster had ensured that the public popularity of the assembly was muted and eventually waned. The public viewed the Assembly as a means to avoid summoning an Estates General, which, of course, was exactly what it was. For this reason, as the Notables resisted Cologne, they were urged on by the press and by the Third Estate. In an unusual twist, it was not long before both groups started calling for the Estates General. Unusual because you might ask yourself, what could possibly drive two social groups with conflicting agendas to call for the same solution? Well, The privileged classes felt that the Estates General could protect their privileges, and the two privileged orders could outvote the third two to one. Meanwhile, the bourgeoisie felt that only men of competence could fix the deteriorating situation, men that would be elevated once the Estates General was summoned. Two very different agendas, one solution, the Estates General. It is noteworthy, however, that some members of the notables were calling for the Estates General not because they sought to protect their privileges, but because they sought to enact constitutional government. Historian Bertha Gardner remarks about the inclination of some of the notables. The majority were against the reforms proposed, while the few who approved them were determined that they should be made by an assembly representative of the nation. The result was that far from being a viable third option for the government to avoid both the parliaments and an Estates General, the Assembly of Notables had only served to make option two all the more difficult to avoid. Both the notables and the general public were clamoring for an Estates General to be summoned. If the Assembly of Notables were lions that had turned on their master in a circus trick gone wrong, then the audience was applauding the improvised show. As the weeks passed as the notables became more entrenched and more hostile to the government's plans, and especially to the man who personified them, Cologne, it became clear to the monarchy itself that these reforms were not going to be agreed upon. Furthermore, that Cologne would have to go. The cries for Cologne's dismissal were becoming ever louder, were becoming ever more vicious, and they were coming even from his fellow nobles. The Archbishop of Narbonne, for example, proclaimed, Cologne wishes to bleed France to death. He is merely asking us whether to make the incision on the feet, the arms, or the jugular vein. Against such opposition, the Controller general like the reformers Necker and Turgot before him, was brought down by his enemies at court. On the 8th of April, 1787, not even two months after the opening of the Assembly of Notables, the Controller general resigned. Now, before we wrap up, If you were somewhat curious about what the hell the king was up to at this point in time, and why, being supposedly an absolute monarch, he didn't just tell everyone to jump and have them jump, well, that's a damn good question. For absolute monarchy to work, you need to have a monarch who's willing to play the part of an autocrat. But an autocrat, Louis XVI was not. As we heard from multiple historians when Louis took the throne, the king was anything but that kind of man. Louis was not a man who you would associate with decisiveness, with tenacity, or with resolve. He was perpetually indecisive. As historian Edward Lau put it, Louis was... totally incapable of standing by himself. He led successfully or simultaneously on his aunt, his wife, his ministers, his courtiers, as ready to change his policy as his advisor. And in this growing storm changes the advisor he did. As Cologne's enemies lined up to tell the king that changing his minister was the best course of action, Louis listened. The king had promised Cologne his unshakable support just weeks before. Had Louis Sixteenth been made of the stock of his predecessors, the notables might not have had the resolve to push back. But then again, such a monarch would not have been so frightened of the Parlement's to call an assembly of notables in the first place. Louis XV had suppressed the Parlement just two decades before when they questioned his will, and probably rolled in his grave when Louis Sixteenth reinstated them at the beginning of his reign. France found itself with an absolute monarchy with an absolute monarch who failed to rule absolutely. Unfortunately for France, such a situation was an absolute recipe for disaster. And disaster beckoned. Thank you for listening to episode 5, The Assembly of Rebels. Next episode, we'll be covering a whole new group of obstructionists. The old group of judges known as the Parlements. Yes, the same Parlements that Louis XVI brought back at the beginning of his reign. And yes, before you ask, he's going to regret it. Before you go, if you've enjoyed today's episode and you're keen for some more grey history, then there is something you can do to help secure more grey history. And that is spread the word. Tell your friends, your colleagues, your bus driver, your doctor, your server at Maccas, anyone who you think might enjoy a history podcast that explores the grey. It's a new podcast and I need all the help I can get. So please, if you've been enjoying the show, please tell someone. Thank you for listening and have a great day.